This podcast contains adult themes and may be disturbing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. Class A Felons B-Film C-Cups. I'm your hostess, Paris. I'm solo today. Today's episode is titled The Manson Women. Look at your game, girl. I'd like to start the very first episode of our podcast with a quote from one of my all-time favorite authors, Vincent Bugliosi, about a haunted and haunting night in August 1969. It was so quiet, one of the killers would later say, you could almost hear the sound of ice rattling in cocktail shakers in the homes way down the canyon. The murders that occurred in the wealthy Benedict Canyon in Los Angeles, California, not far from Bel Air, instantly became known as the crime of the century and the event that officially ended the 1960s. The chief reason for this was the intrigue surrounding the most famous victim that night, Sharon Tate, even though she wasn't actually all that famous at the time. It was her husband, Roman Polanski, who had become one of the best-known names in Hollywood the previous year after directing one of the best horror films of all time, Rosemary's Baby. Sharon was a B-film actress, only truly becoming a star in death. Although she was quite beautiful and improving in her craft with every film, she was taking a break to focus on her much-anticipated first child, who was due the following month. Yet the murders actually began about a week prior to Sharon's, and she wasn't the only one killed that night, or the next. And then there was yet another murder before the month was out. In all, Charles Manson would kill or have his cult, known as the family, kill nine people, not to mention a tenth victim previously wounded by Charlie. The murders created ripples of panic and fear throughout Los Angeles County in 1969. And so we begin. Enter the chilling, darkened, and surprisingly aesthetic sphere of Charles Manson and his followers, known as the Manson family. On July 31, 1969, Gary Hinman, 34 years old, was stabbed five times by family associate Bobby Beausoleil and mutilated by Manson. On August 9, 1969, Stephen Parent, 18 years old, was shot four times by family member Tex Watson. On August 9, Jay Sebring, 35 years old, was stabbed seven times and shot once by Tex Watson. On August 9, Abigail Folger, 25 years old, was stabbed 28 times by family members Patricia Krenwinkel and Tex Watson. On August 9th, Wojtek Frykowski, 32 years old, was stabbed 51 times and shot twice by family members Susan Atkins and Tex Watson. On August 9th, Sharon Tate, a.k.a. Sharon Polanski, was 26 years old and 8 months pregnant. She was planning on naming her son Paul Richard Polanski. She was stabbed 16 times by either Susan Atkins, Tex Watson, or both. On August 10th, Lino LaBianca was 44 years old. He was stabbed 26 times with a knife and a large double-tined fork by Tex Watson and Patricia Krenwinkel. On August 10th, Rosemary LaBianca, 38 years old, was stabbed 41 times by family members Patricia Krenwinkel 
and Leslie Van Houten. On August 26th, Donald Shea, a.k.a. Shorty Shea, 35 years old, was stabbed multiple times and tortured to death by family members Tex Watson, Steve Grogan, and Bruce Davis. His body was not recovered for eight years. In addition, on July 1st, 1969, Bernard Crow, a.k.a. Lotsapapa, was shot once by Charles Manson, but recovered from his wound, although Manson believed for over a year that he had killed him. There's a plethora of information out there about Charles Manson, including podcasts, and there's also a lot of misinformation, particularly about his early life. For instance, the fact that Charlie spent years with a loving grandmother and was raised and even married in the Nazarene church is usually left out of his life story. And this is where my sister and I feel we have something in common with Charles Manson. We both attended the Nazarene church and we were raised in that church when we were children. So because of this overabundance of information out there about Charlie, we've chosen instead to profile five women who are, arguably, the most fascinating members of the Manson family, starting with Susan Denise Atkins. Susan, a.k.a. Sadie Mae Glutz, was born May 7, 1948, in San Gabriel, California, which is in Los Angeles County. She was raised in San Jose, California, by her father, Edward, a former private in the U.S. Army, and her mother, Jeannie. Susan would later claim that her parents were both alcoholics, although there's no corroborating evidence. She was an average student in school, attended church, and never got into trouble. The event that first defined her early life was when her mother died of cancer. Susan was 15. She sang in the choir at either school or church that year, and remembered taking the other members of her group to sing Christmas carols outside her mother's bedroom window during her final days. I couldn't understand why she died, she later testified, and it hurt me. Susan's last school photo was taken when she was 13, so about 8th grade. She looks solemn, almost worried in the photo, and her hair is in a sort of shaggy bouffant. This is the year her mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and Susan claims in one of her books that this is the last photo taken of her for nearly seven years, but this isn't true. A number of photos exist from her high school days, most of them yearbook photos. In one high school photo, she looks fresh-faced and attractive, wearing long bangs, and the rest of her hair is either cropped short or more likely pinned up in the back. She belonged to several clubs in high school, including Drama and Glee Club. One photo shows her dressed in a conservative, Jackie Kennedy-style tweed suit, while another shows a trendier side of Susan wearing black pants or jeans with white go-go boots. After her mother passed away, she and her father constantly got into arguments. They were heavily in debt due to her mother's medical bills. Her grandparents moved in for a while to help, while her father left home for periods of time to look for better work. At one point, however... She and her brothers had to briefly stay in a foster home. She dropped out of Los Baños High School and went to stay in San Francisco, about 48 miles or 77 kilometers from her San Jose home. There she took jobs as a telemarketer and a waitress before deciding to tag along with a couple of escaped convicts and commit armed robberies with them up the coast. They were caught in Oregon in 1966, and Susan was sentenced to three months in jail plus probation. She had a 25 caliber pistol with her. As she was put into handcuffs, she told the arresting officer that if he hadn't drawn his gun first, she would have killed him. 
Afterwards, she returned to San Francisco and began working as a topless dancer. Susan had long dark hair and huge brown eyes and an almost constant impish expression. Much of her life story cannot be corroborated because she was known to often exaggerate or outright lie. She bragged that she had once worked for Anton LaVey. LaVey was an infamous entertainer who worked at various times as a lion tamer, stage hypnotist, burlesque pianist, and police photographer, but he's best known as a founder of the Church of Satan. Susan supposedly played the role of a vampire who emerged from a coffin during a witch's Sabbath arranged by Anton. She was adept at using her sexuality and extroverted personality to obtain attention, manipulate others, and get what she wanted, which was very often men. But after meeting Charlie Manson at a party in San Francisco where she watched him play guitar, she immediately joined his group of women followers. The day they met, he told her that she was, quote, perfect, and that she had a hang-up about her father. She was so slavishly in love with him that once, when he remarked, I'd like half a coconut, even if you have to go to Rio de Janeiro to get it, Susan was instantly out the door when he called out, Never mind. Still, she wanted first pick of any new men who appeared on the scene. Fellow family member Diane Lake felt that Susan longed to be just like Charlie and would sometimes try to act like him. Susan was believed to have brought gonorrhea into the Manson family, and Dennis Wilson, drummer for the legendary Beach Boys and temporary Manson family associate, took them all to his personal doctor for treatment. Dennis later said, It was probably the largest gonorrhea bill in history. In June of 1968, Susan, Patricia Krenwinkel, and a few other Manson women traveled to Mendocino, California for a family recruiting effort and were arrested when they gave LSD to a minor. In an article published on June 24th of that year, the Ukiah Daily Journal referred to them as the, quote, witches of Mendocino. Susan received a suspended sentence of 60 days in jail and three years probation for what was then a felony charge of possession of marijuana. Susan became pregnant in early 1968 by a family associate known as New Bruce. She seemed to have a difficult pregnancy. Formerly graceful, with a great figure, and obsessed with being viewed as sexy, she was now clumsy and awkward. On the other hand, let's not forget that she was also prone to exaggeration. She constantly complained about not feeling well throughout her pregnancy, although she was always down for horse riding and drugs. When Susan went into early labor on October 7, 1968, the Manson family members present at the time all gathered round. Charlie coached her through, and when her son was born, he ordered the youngest member of the group, Diane, to cut off the umbilical cord with her teeth. It was to be a symbolic bond, since the two women were often scrapping with each other. However, Diane did not go through with it. But because Charlie wanted the baby to have a powerful and completely original name, he chose... Are you ready? Ziza Zozi Zadfrak Glutz. Welcome to the world, little Zizo. When sheriff's deputies raided Barker Ranch in Death Valley, California, where part of the family were staying around the time of the Tate-LaBianca murders in 1969, Zizo Zozi was among the children and babies taken into foster care. He was a year old at the time and badly sunburned. Sort of weirdly, Susan's maternal grandmother and Sharon Tate's mother shared the same name, Doris. And after being adopted by a doctor, Susan's son, little Zizo, had his name changed to Paul, the same name Sharon had decided on for her own son, who was to have been named after her father. Former family member Diane Lake has said that shortly after the Tate-LaBianca murders out in the desert near Barker Ranch, 
Susan, Patricia, and Leslie Van Houten all told her about their own involvement those two nights. The three participants chattered about murder as if they were teens sitting on a frilly pink bedspread rehashing the latest school dance. Susan admitted stabbing Sharon Tate. Now this is significant because over the ensuing years, she recanted this admission and changed the story several times. But Diane declares there's no doubt in her mind that Susan told her the truth about personally murdering Sharon. When the Beatles' White Album was released in 1968, Charlie insisted that the song Sexy Sadie was, of course, about Susan, their very own Sadie Mae Glutz. As Charlie began to realize that the music career he longed for wasn't getting off the ground, he seemed to become much more materialistic and interested in money-making schemes. He came up with the idea of having the women in the family become topless dancers. He sent Bobby Beausoleil to the Sunset Strip in Hollywood to negotiate a deal. However, only Susan and a couple of others had bust sizes impressive enough to make the cut, so Charlie had to scrap that plan. On the night of the LaBianca murders, Charlie drove around Los Angeles with Susan and two other family members, Linda Kasabian and Steve, a.k.a. Clem Grogan. Charlie wanted Linda to seek out a Lebanese actor she'd once slept with in his Venice Beach apartment, 17 miles or 27 kilometers from Los Angeles. And with Susan and Clem in tow, kill him. Dreading the thought of another murder, Linda purposely knocked on the wrong door, and when an unknown voice called out from behind the door, she essentially told the others, Oops, wrong apartment, guess he moved. Before they left the building, however, Susan defecated on the landing. At the time of Susan's arrest for her participation in the Gary Hinman murder, she stood 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed 120 pounds. According to her cellmate, Virginia Graham, Susan really stood out at Sybil Brand, which was a Los Angeles County jail for women. She'd go around singing down the aisles and chatting endlessly about LSD trips she'd taken, karma, and good and bad vibes. Also, without warning, she'd suddenly stop whatever she was doing and start go-go dancing. Which, if you think about it, actually sounds like really good therapy. She did her exercises without underwear. And I have heard that naked yoga was the thing back then. And she also sexually propositioned other inmates. She gushed about Charlie constantly and told Virginia that it was Charlie who gave her the name Sadie Mae Glutz. According to Vincent Bugliosi's well-researched book, Helter Skelter, Virginia remarked that she didn't consider that much of a favor. After blabbing to Virginia and another cellmate named Ronnie Howard about the Tate murders and her role in them, as well as initially agreeing to testify against the other family members in exchange for immunity, which was an agreement she later reneged on, little white stickers began appearing around jail, bearing the words, Sadie Glutz is a snitch. Susan had also told Ronnie that she had reached a point in her life where she had done everything there was to do. There was nothing left. At times, the details of Susan's descriptions of Sharon Tate's murder varied. However, as with Diane, she always maintained to Virginia and Ronnie that she had done the stabbing. Sometimes, though, she mentioned that one or two of her accomplices had held Sharon down for her. Susan also confided to both women that she was very good at playing crazy, especially with psychiatrists. Ronnie retorted, All you have to do is act normal. Susan told Virginia in detail about how the family planned to kill other famous people, including celebrities Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, Steve McQueen, Frank Sinatra, and Tom Jones. 
Susan said she would take a red-hot knife and hold it to Elizabeth Taylor's face, carve the words, held her skelter on her forehead, and gouge out her violet eyes. Then she wanted to castrate Richard Burton and mail the evidence, along with Liz's eyes, to Eddie Fisher, Taylor's ex-husband. But that's not all. She also fantasized about raping Tom Jones and then slitting his throat, as well as skinning Frank Sinatra alive with his own music playing in the background and then making purses out of his skin to sell to hippies. These were Susan's fantasies. After tons of red tape and dismissals, Virginia and Ronnie were both able, separately, to report Susan's bizarre confessions. After Susan found out, she sent a jailhouse note to Ronnie. In part, it read, When I first heard you were the informer, I wanted to slit your throat. Then I snapped that I was the real informer, and it was my throat I wanted to cut. She then quoted from a song of Charlie's called Cease to Exist. And I have a confession here. I actually love this song, and I think it shows that Charlie did have some promise as a musician. Anyway, the quote from the song is, Cease to exist, just come and say you love me. Susan also wrote incriminating letters to others, some of which were later read in court. Charlie's lawyer wanted the words love, love, love redacted from one note because, he claimed, they were obviously a reference to Manson. The judge commented wryly, Sounds more like Gertrude Stein to me. I always love a well-placed literary reference. The Los Angeles district attorney, and weirdly, his last name was Younger, while the trial judge's last name was Older, initially offered Susan full immunity for the Hinman and Tate murders in exchange for her cooperative testimony, which infuriated the lead prosecuting attorney, Vincent Bugliosi, as Susan repulsed him and he had zero trust in her. Her taped confession proved Bugliosi's reservations about making her his star witness. As she talked about the horrific murders, her voice was flat and affectless. When she related the details of Sharon's death, she actually giggled. In her testimony before the grand jury who convened to decide if there was enough evidence to bring Charlie, Patricia, and Leslie to trial, Susan related that, Among ourselves, we called ourselves the family. It was a family like no other family. Bugliosi was sure he heard a juror mutter, Thank God. And Tex wasn't included here, because he was still fighting extradition from Texas, where he'd fled after the murders. Almost immediately, Charlie managed to get a meeting with Susan in jail, with their attorneys present, and she instantly repudiated her testimony under his influence. Susan's lawyer remembered that Charlie asked Susan, Are you afraid of the gas chamber? She smiled and said no. She would no longer be a witness, and she would stand trial with the others. Susan's father was still living in San Jose, and he told reporters that his daughter was sick and needed help. He blamed her involvement in the family on drugs and the leniency of the courts in Susan's previous sentencing. During the trial, jurors were sequestered for nearly nine months at the Ambassador Hotel, which is a piece of California history that has since been torn down, to the utter horror of historical architecture buffs like myself. Robert Kennedy was assassinated there the year before the Tate-LaBianca murders. A member of the prosecution team noted that Judge Older had sentenced felons for less time than the jurors would have to serve. Paul Fitzgerald, Patricia's attorney, joked, not at the ambassador, though. At Charlie's direction and cues, Susan, Patricia, and Leslie regularly disrupted court proceedings. When his motion to represent himself, called improper, was denied, Charlie said dramatically, Okay, then you leave me nothing. You can kill me now. He bowed his head and held out his arms in a dramatic crucifixion pose. The three women immediately emulated him, and all four resisted, scuffling with the deputies as they were removed from the courtroom. 
Later during the trial, Manson leapt over the defense table with a sharpened pencil in his hand toward the judge, screaming, In the name of Christian justice, someone should cut your head off. The women stood and began chanting in Latin as they were all removed. At another point, while Susan passed by Bugliosi, she kicked a female deputy in the leg, then grabbed Bugliosi's trial notes off the lectern, ripping them in half. While Linda Kasabian, star witness for the prosecution, described the murder of Stephen Parent, the three women assumed disaffected poses, with Susan giggling, Leslie sketching, and Patricia looking bored. Virginia Graham, Susan's one-time cellmate, took the stand to testify against her. She was a very glamorous woman who styled herself according to the big hair we love and heavy eyeliner standards of the day. Susan called out in court to her, Why don't you take off your wig and phony face? You're not a very good actress. One day, Susan lost her bra, and court was postponed until another one could be located for her to appear in at her trial. Although Patricia and Leslie's parents testified in the penalty phase of the trial on their behalf, Susan's father refused to have anything to do with her and never appeared in court. What he did want to do, he told reporters, was to get his hands on Manson. Bugliosi managed to ask Susan on the stand if she thought that Charlie was Jesus Christ. She was evasive, so he asked her again, quote, You think that maybe Charles Manson, the man over there who is playing with his hair, might be Jesus Christ? And questions like that are why I love Vincent Bugliosi. She finally answered, He represented a God to me that was so beautiful that I'd do anything for him. When asked how she felt about the victims, she responded, They didn't even look like people. I didn't relate to Sharon Tate as being anything but a store mannequin. She just sounded like an IBM machine, and I got sick of listening to her, so I stabbed her. All four defendants, Charlie, Susan, Patricia, and Leslie, were sentenced to death. That day, they appeared in court with their heads shaved. Before the sentence was read, Charlie yelled, You people have no authority over me. Half of you in here ain't as good as I am. He was once again removed, and after the verdict was read, each of the remaining defendants also had something to say, unprompted. Patricia proclaimed, You have just judged yourselves, while Susan taunted, Better lock your doors and watch your own kids. Leslie followed this up with, Your whole system is a game. You blind, stupid people. Your children will turn against you. One trial spectator, Los Angeles Times reporter Dave Smith, observed to Susan, Watching her behavior, bold and actressy in court, cute and mincing when making eye contact with someone, a little haunted when no one is paying attention, I get the feeling that one day she might start screaming and simply never stop. This assessment seems to sum up Susan's life, from her early helplessness at her mother's death to her exaggerated gleefulness at sentencing others to die. In 1972, the state of California overturned the death penalty, and all of the Manson family's sentences were automatically commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole. In 1977, Susan co-wrote a book from prison called Child of Satan, Child of God, in which she attributed her willingness to murder for Charlie to satanic possession and now claimed to be a born-again Christian. During her stay in prison, she was denied parole a total of 17 times. She participated in prison programs and taught classes. In 1981, she married a serial husband named Donald Lee Leisure. I call him a serial husband because Susan supposedly became his 35th or 36th wife. He was a heavyset guy who liked to replace the S in his last name, unironically, with a dollar sign, 
and he professed to be a millionaire, except he wasn't. The marriage lasted less than a year. Susan then married a James Whitehouse, 15 years her junior, who became a lawyer and began representing her at parole hearings. Like her mother, Susan had health issues throughout her life. She reportedly suffered from hepatitis while with the Manson family. In early 2008, she was diagnosed with brain cancer. She also had one leg amputated. Her attorney husband requested what's known as a compassionate release from prison. Vincent Bugliosi did not oppose the release, stating that she had paid, quote, substantially, though not completely, for her horrendous crimes. And he also noted that it would save the state a great deal of money in medical costs if she were to be released. However, others, including Deputy DA Stephen Kay, then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, and members of the Tate and Sebring families wanted her to remain in prison until death. Susan and her husband's request was denied just 22 days before she died on September 24, 2009. Born December 3, 1947, Patricia Diane Krenwinkel, also called Patty, Big Patty, or Katie, was perhaps the most insecure of Manson's women. She had long, thick, reddish-brown hair and striking blue eyes. In her photos, her physique seems to alternate from slightly heavyset and muscular to extremely thin and petite. At the time of her arrest for the Tate and LaBianca murders, she was 5 feet 6 inches tall and 120 pounds. She was 22 years old, but looked older. She also sometimes went by the aliases Marnie Reeves and Mary Ann Scott. She grew up in and near Mobile, Alabama with her father Joseph, her mother Dorothy, and an older half-sister Charlene from her mother's first marriage before the family moved to California. Her father Joseph was an insurance agent in Inglewood near the city of Compton, which was in a solidly middle-class area. Patricia had an ordinary childhood and was very involved in extracurricular activities, such as the Bluebirds and Campfire Girls, which focused on children's outdoor activities, as well as Job's Daughters, a Masonic-affiliated spiritual-based girls' organization, the Audubon Society, an environmental group, and the church choir. She was an average student in school. She was briefly enrolled at Westchester High School, which was the same school fellow family member Lynette Frommy attended, although they didn't know each other and then went to University High in West Los Angeles. Patricia lost her virginity at age 15 and never saw the boy again. The experience caused her tremendous guilt. For a while, she became obese and finally lost the weight through the use of diet pills, which would have afflicted her with unpleasant side effects. When she was 17 and her parents amicably divorced, she briefly moved back to Alabama to live with her mother and attended a semester at Spring Hill, a Jesuit college there. It's been said that she considered becoming a nun at the time, but she soon returned to California and moved into an apartment in Manhattan Beach in the South Bay area of Los Angeles with her half-sister Charlene. Charlene later died at age 26 back in Anniston, Alabama, after Patty had been extradited to California and was awaiting trial for the Tate-LaBianca murders. Reportedly, Charlene had gone skinny-dipping at night with her boyfriend. They got separated, and her body was discovered in the morning lying in shallow water. It's been widely speculated that she was on drugs at the time and perhaps died from a drug overdose. On September 12, 1967, when she was 19, Patricia abandoned her car in a Manhattan Beach parking lot, quit her job as a file clerk without collecting her paycheck, and abruptly left town with Charles Manson. 
Charlie was the first man who'd ever told her she was beautiful. In early 1968, Patty, along with another family member, Ella, were picked up by Dennis Wilson while hitchhiking along Sunset Boulevard. The acquisition of a wealthy benefactor and music industry insider like Dennis was considered a major contribution to the family. According to Diane Lake, Dennis initially drove the women to Spawn Ranch, where he met Charlie and his philosophies, listened to him sing, Look at your game, girl, and was told by Charlie, You know, man, you got your father in you. He took over your mind, and that's why you don't believe in your own music. On at least one occasion, the women rode with Dennis in his Burgundy Rolls Royce to the local A&P or Ralph's supermarket to go dumpster diving for food. Once they made him a strawberry cake topped with dumpster Cool Whip from their spoils. No pun intended. The Manson family women also once stripped the satin sheets from Dennis's bed to make swimsuits and pants for themselves. Dennis scheduled a recording session for Charlie at his brother Brian Wilson's house in Bel Air with some music producers. Charlie had trouble getting into his game and soon stormed out of the studio. He was not only upset at their helpful advice for improving his sound, but he was also enraged at their aesthetic suggestions, which he described to Dennis, quote, Dig it, man. They want me to dress like you dudes. I ain't gonna wear no threads like that. That just ain't me. On the night of the Tate murders, Patricia, like Susan, wore a dark t-shirt and blue jeans. Tex Watson wore a black velour turtleneck and dark pants. The women were barefoot. After stabbing Abigail Folger to death, Patricia went along the next night to kill the LaBiancas. She stabbed Rosemary multiple times, then went into the kitchen and wrote Helter Skelter, which she misspelled, in blood. She walked into the living room where Tex had murdered Lino, holding a large two-pronged carving fork that in better times was used at LaBianca family holiday festivities, and she plunged it into Lino's stomach. She then carved the word war into the dead man's abdomen. After that, Patricia, Leslie, and Tex took a shower and began to feel hungry. As one does, I guess, after just murdering innocent people. So they went back into the kitchen and ate the LaBianca's food. Leslie also took some of Rosemary's clothes to wear back to Spawn Ranch. When Patricia, Susan, and Leslie later recounted the murders to Diane Lake, she thought their actions seemed in character for Susan and Leslie, but she was shocked at Patty's voluntary participation. When the police investigation began to close in on the Manson family, Patricia fled back to Mobile, Alabama. A warrant was put out for her arrest in connection with the Tate-LaBianca murders. Local police spotted her riding around town in a car with a male teenage friend. She was wearing what the LA Times termed hippie garb, which consisted of a big, floppy hat, blue jeans, and a man's checkered shirt two sizes too big for her. When she saw the policeman staring at her, she pulled the hat down over her eyes in an attempt to conceal herself. Patricia was convicted of seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. She was sentenced to death, which, as was Susan, was commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole. She's been at the California Institution for Women in Chino, California ever since, holding the record for the longest incarcerated woman in state history. Although she has a perfect prison record with no write-ups ever, she's been turned down for parole 14 times. She's earned a bachelor's degree in human services via correspondence courses at the University of Laverne. She's active in several prison programs, including Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. She teaches reading, plays on a prison volleyball team, and plays guitar. By 1974, Patricia, along with fellow killer Leslie Van Houten, had professed to be sorry for the murders, possibly with an eye toward future parole hearings. 
Leslie Louise Van Houten, a.k.a. Lulu, was born August 23, 1949 in Los Angeles, California, to Paul, an auto auctioneer, and Jane, a teacher. Along with one older brother, they all lived in a typical middle-class neighborhood. After the Korean War, Leslie's parents adopted two more children, a boy and a girl who had been orphaned in Korea. However, in 1963, they divorced, and the children all remained with Jane. From an early age, Leslie struggled with impulsiveness. She went into rages when she didn't get her way, and she once beat her adopted sister with a shoe. At her first trial, however, her mother described her as feisty and fun, with a wonderful sense of humor. As a young teenager, Leslie loved to go dancing at the Harmony Park Ballroom in Anaheim, California, near Disneyland. This venue was made famous by its house band, the Deltones, as well as by Hometown Jamboree, which was a country-western radio and later TV show that broadcast there, and by the fact that Richard Berry wrote the hit song Louie Louie there in 1955. Leslie even bought shoes based on how well they would slide across the ballroom's wooden dance floors. With her straight brown hair and big brown eyes, Leslie was popular at Monrovia High School and was elected homecoming princess twice in her freshman and sophomore years. In her junior year, she wasn't chosen for the homecoming court, and she became bitter over the perceived rejection. At the same time, though, she also began experimenting with drugs, especially LSD. She became pregnant at 15 by an older boy, and Jane forced her to have an abortion, which created a deep resentment toward her mother. She ran away with a young man to hate Ashbury, but soon returned home. The hippie scene, her mother said, frightened her. She managed to graduate high school in 1967 and immediately moved in with her father. She enrolled in business college, planning on becoming a legal secretary. She also became deeply interested in yoga. In 1968, while visiting a friend in San Francisco, she lived in a commune for a few months and met Bobby Beausoleil. Leslie joined the Manson family shortly thereafter when she visited Spawn Ranch with Bobby, his wife, and his lover, Catherine Cher, a.k.a. Gypsy. Leslie was Bobby's girlfriend of the hour, but when he took off, Leslie and Gypsy decided to stay. Spawn Ranch was an old Western movie set where dozens of films and television shows had once been staged. It was in a fairly isolated area of Chatsworth, about 40 miles or 64 kilometers north of Los Angeles. After Westerns fell out of vogue, the octogenarian owner, George Spawn, turned it into a dude ranch where people could rent horses to ride. Spawn was blind and allowed the Manson family to stay at the ranch in exchange for doing chores and the, quote, companionship of some of the women. Leslie seems to have initially rubbed several of the Manson women there the wrong way at first. Diane Lake writes that she was unsure of Leslie and never felt close to her, and Sadie apparently viewed her as competition for men because Leslie was conventionally attractive. She was also obsessed with physical beauty, and later admitted that she wasn't attracted to Charlie, although she still willingly killed for him. Leslie described the stabbing of Rosemary LaBianca to Diane Lake as strange at first, but ultimately, quote, fun. She admitted to her that she wasn't sure whether Rosemary was dead or not when she began stabbing her. When called in for questioning by detectives at the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department regarding the murders, Leslie adapted a cute little girl affect, putting her manipulation talents on full display. Before the trial began, Leslie's attorney at the time, Marvin Part, and side note here, all of the Manson women went through attorneys like hotcakes. Anyway, he interviewed Leslie to obtain her version of the murders. Afterwards, he told the judge, that girl is insane in a way that is almost science fiction. In any case, Leslie was so confident that she would serve minimal time for stabbing Rosemary LaBianca that she wrote her parents and told them that even if convicted, she'd be out on parole in seven years. 
Leslie's lawyer for most of the trial, Ronald Hughes, was known as a hippie lawyer because of his full beard and disheveled appearance. Before being appointed as her attorney, he'd briefly served as Charlie's counsel. After the prosecution rested its case and the defense announced it would also rest without calling any witnesses, the Manson women suddenly demanded to testify. They planned to incriminate themselves and claimed that Charlie had no part in the murders. Hughes stood up to Charlie for the first time, arguing, I refuse to take part in any proceedings where I am forced to push a client out the window. Just before final arguments, on November 30, 1970, he failed to appear in court. Later, it was discovered that he'd gone camping at Sespe Hot Springs, a rugged area 130 miles or 209 kilometers northwest of Los Angeles with a teenage couple. It began to rain and the teens left, but Hughes decided to stay behind. He was seen alone the following day and seemed fine, but no one had contact with him again after that. A search turned up nothing. Hughes had left some court transcripts in the teenager's Volkswagen, but a psychiatric report on Leslie was missing. A new attorney, Maxwell Keith, was appointed to finish out the trial with Leslie. Months later, Hughes' body was found in a gorge in Sespe Hot Springs, so decomposed that the cause of death could not be determined. Prior to the release of a documentary film called Manson in 1972, director Lawrence Merrick interviewed some of the Manson women. Sandra Good confided in him that, quote, Hughes was the first of the retaliation murders. In 1977, five years after Leslie's death sentence was commuted to life, she was granted a new trial. The appellate court ruled that because her attorney had died in the midst of the proceedings, a mistrial should have been declared. Her jury deadlocked, and a third trial was scheduled for March of 1978, but in the interim, she was released for about six months, her first taste of freedom in eight years. She even attended the Academy Awards ceremony incognito that year. However, she was sentenced to life again in prison, with the possibility of parole. Back behind bars, Leslie began to suffer from anorexia. She briefly married a man named Bill Sywin, a former convict. The brief marriage ended when his plans for breaking her out of prison were revealed. Keeping pace with Patricia, correspondence courses yielded Leslie a bachelor's degree in English literature from Antioch University, and she's at least initiated additional courses toward a master's degree in, in psychology. Alongside Patty, she's participated in AA, Narcotics Anonymous, and teaching other inmates to read. In 1985, filmmaker John Waters, famous for cult classics I love like Hairspray, Pink Flamingos, Crybaby, and Female Trouble, became intrigued by Leslie and what he perceived as a uniquely troubled life. The film Pink Flamingos, in its opening credits, is even dedicated to, quote, the Manson girls, Sadie, Katie, and Les. Walters wrote her in prison, and they struck up a lasting correspondence. He's even visited her numerous times at the women's prison in Chino, California, and remains a staunch supporter and advocate for her release. She's been denied parole 20 times. In 2017, the parole board recommended her release, but it was vetoed by California Governor Jerry Brown, who argued that there is still a slight risk that Leslie could be a detriment to society. Lynette Frummy was the first of three children born to William Frummy and Gertrude Helen Benzinger. And the pronunciation of Frummy may sound odd because she's usually referred to as Lynette Frome in media, but according to Lynn herself, the correct pronunciation is Frummy. Helen, as she was called, has been described as plain and mousy, while William was seemingly unassuming and socially awkward in public, 
but controlling and cruel at home, especially toward Lynette. He dressed with care and wore a crew cut. He worked as an aircraft engineer for Northrop, and the family lived in an upscale suburb called Westchester, six miles south of Santa Monica, California, close to where Patricia Krenwinkel grew up. Lynette wrote her name in the wet cement on the sidewalk outside her new tract house in 1960. In the early 1950s, Jay Tillman and Louise Hall, formerly of Big Sandy, Tennessee, became the Frummies' neighbors and began a children's dance troupe called the Lariettes. Tillman had once been Gene Kelly's drill instructor in the Navy, and the actor occasionally dropped in backstage after performances. Lynette joined as one of the youngest members and grew along with the troupe as it became a prominent performance group in Southern California during the 50s, appearing at the Shrine Auditorium, the Hollywood Bowl, and Disneyland. Walt Disney himself apparently loved the troupe and once invited the Lariats to a party at his ranch, where Annette Funicello of the Mickey Mouse Club was in attendance. The Lariats also appeared on television shows, the Lawrence Welk Show and Dinah Shores and Art Link Letters talk shows. Lynette and the other girls often appeared in frilly dresses and ballet slippers. They visited the White House, although then-Vice President Nixon, who was supposed to meet them, failed to appear. At home, however, Lynette wasn't treated nearly as well. Her father would make her eat meals in the kitchen instead of at the dining table with the rest of the family. He would sometimes stop speaking to her entirely. She didn't know why. She was fairly close to her mother, although Helen seemed completely cowed by William, and to her grandmother, who lived at Leisure World in Seal Beach, California. This ginormous retirement community and the giant metal framework globe sculpture near the front entrance is a familiar sight to anyone from the Orange County area. Lynette entered junior high in 1960. Among her classmates was future actor and comedian Phil Hartman, who would himself later die tragically. They were friendly and took drama class together, but Lynette soon entered a more eccentric clique. She became that girl in school, who wore black clothing and introduced everyone else to Ouija boards, although in her last year at Orville Wright Junior High, she was voted Personality Plus. Her favorite subject in high school was poetry. After graduation, she briefly attended El Camino Community College in nearby Torrance, California. Near the end of her first year, she and her father got into an argument and she left home, hitchhiking to the bohemian Venice Beach. While sitting on a bench at the boardwalk, a smelly, elf-like man approached and introduced himself. He said, Up in the height, I'm called the gardener. I tend to all the flower children. And we can guess who this man was. So your father kicked you out, he went on. And shortly, Lynette was convinced enough of his psychic abilities that she became the second member of his so-called family, joining his girlfriend and first family member, Mary Brenner. The most outspoken and devoted follower of Manson, Lynette, who soon became known as Squeaky, due to the high-pitched squeal she gave when old George Spawn grabbed or pinched her on the rear, was Manson's second-in-command after Mary Brenner, who was also known as Mother Mary. Strangely, even though Lynette was born and raised in Southern California, her speech began to closely resemble that of an old Appalachian mountain woman after joining the family. This was probably a deliberate or subconscious emulation of Manson's Midwestern accent. One of her special talents within the family was making herself appear helpless and innocent, a sweet little girl that people could trust. Kind of reminds me of Rhoda from The Bad Seed. In fact, she had insidious, dark impulses. She helped precipitate one of the first Manson family murders that of Spawn ranch hand Shorty Shea, by telling Charlie that he was complaining to George Spawn about the family's presence. And in response, George was now grumbling that, quote, too many long hairs make a place look bad. Shortly thereafter, Shorty disappeared. His body was discovered buried on the ranch years later. 
When biker gangs began hanging around Spawn Ranch at Charlie's invitation, Lynn enthusiastically began to collect denim vests and buck brand knives for herself and the other women in the family. On each vest, she embroidered a skull and crossbones, along with the words, Devil's Witches, Devil's Hole, Death Valley. So edgy. During the raid on Barker Ranch, Vincent Bugliosi encountered Lynette and her closest friend in the family, Sandra Good, walking down the street in the nearby small town of Ballarat. Guessing who they were based on descriptions he had read, he approached them and asked if they'd be willing to talk to him at the Inyo County District Attorney's Office. They both said they would, if he'd buy them some candy. He did, and they came in. He noticed that they seemed more like Barbie dolls than human beings. They displayed what seemed like programmed expressions, tonality, responses, and lack of individual personalities. Lynette did volunteer the information that she was in love with the 81-year-old George Spawn, that she'd marry him if he asked her, and that he was very good in bed. During the Tate-LaBianca trial, Lynette demonstrated her devotion to Charlie by holding court with reporters on a street corner outside the courthouse, as well as staging what she called a crawl for freedom, in which she and other Manson family members crawled 15 miles down Sunset Boulevard from the beach to downtown Los Angeles. In addition, she carved an X into her forehead, as did the rest of the group with either knives, razor blades, or soldering irons, and at one point, she shaved her head in solidarity with the inmates. She was the one most often asked to speak on behalf of the group, because she was so articulate and willing to talk. She still had a sweet tooth, and Patricia's attorney, Paul Fitzgerald, often took her to House of Pies in Burbank to gobble down pie and ice cream. A couple of times, Lynette accompanied Fitzgerald to visit Charlie in jail. On one occasion, Charlie remarked, Wouldn't it be nice if I could see some of God's creatures again? The very next visit, Lynette somehow snuck in a four-foot snake in a burlap bag, which the guards had failed to search. Look what we brought you! One of God's little creatures! she said happily. Fitzgerald was appalled and hissed appropriately, Put that away! But Charlie reacted like a pleased old lady visiting a bird sanctuary. Oh, that's very nice, he said. In her spare time, Lynette and the other women made clothes for the defendants, who treated their trial as a fashion or costume show. Charlie usually dressed modishly, and Susan, Patricia, and Leslie donned satin dresses, miniskirts, pantsuits, and cloaks. On December 18, 1970, Lynette was indicted along with four other Manson family members for obstruction of justice and attempted murder for spiking the hamburger of a potential prosecution witness in the Tate-LaBianca trial with an enormous dose of LSD. Charges were eventually reduced and she served only 90 days in jail. After Charlie went to prison, he became involved with the Aryan Brotherhood, a white supremacist prison gang, and made some deals with them. One involved Lynette and Sandra becoming the property of paroled gang members. Around this time, they also met a married couple, Lauren and James Willett, who had an infant daughter. In November 1972, Lynette, along with another woman and several Aryan Brotherhood members, were arrested for the murders of the young couple. Their baby daughter, luckily, was found alive and well, being cared for and living with the group. The charges against Lynette were again dropped, but the others did prison time. Meanwhile, the Manson family had disintegrated. Most of its members were in prison now for various murders, robberies, and other charges. Those who weren't had either abandoned the lifestyle or were following a new leader named Kenneth Como, a.k.a. Jesse James, also of the Aryan Brotherhood. Lynette felt increasingly isolated, 
but remained obsessed with Charlie. In 1974, Lynette made the acquaintance of a Mr. Harold, a.k.a. Manny Borrow, age 64, while living in Sacramento, California, 386 miles or 621 kilometers from Los Angeles. Manny was balding, favored golf caps and polyester sports shirts, drove a 1963 Cadillac, and from just this information, I'm assuming always drove at least always 10 miles under the speed limit. He'd been divorced for decades, had few friends, and was a retired draftsman. He owned a 40-acre ranch and was apparently a real grump. That is, until he met 25-year-old Lynette in a Sacramento park. The two began a sexual relationship. Manny bought her a used red 1963 Volkswagen Beetle, but it constantly needed repairs. So she often borrowed his Cadillac, and in short order, totaled it completely. Despite her new relationship with Manny, Lynette still kept in touch with Charlie in prison. He had concocted a new religious order, with Lynette and Sandra Good as his only converts. It was called the Order of the Rainbow, and he wrote up a strict set of rules that allowed him to continue to control the women from behind bars. These included the following instructions. No meat, no smoking, no makeup, no fornication or showing your ass, no movies with violence that sets thoughts to death and confusion. And oh, guess who was deemed to be the deity of this religion? Yes, Charlie, of course. The gist of this new theology, according to Lynette, was as follows, quote, We're waiting for our Lord, meaning Charlie, and there's only one thing to do before he comes off the cross, meaning prison, and that's clean up the earth. We're nuns now. Our red robes are an example of the new morality. They're red with the sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice. Charlie was the one who had suggested they begin wearing long cloaks in public. This was a complete 180 from the free love days on Spawn Ranch. Lynette enthusiastically passed on Charlie's new ideology to Susan, Patricia, and Leslie in prison, but they weren't interested and even began to refuse the letters she wrote to them. In any case, Lynette set about obeying Charlie's new orders, except that she began to embrace violence more than ever. Following Charlie's lead as he began complaining about environmental pollution, she drafted letters to corporate CEOs and their wives as well. One template threatened in part, your product is killing, poisoning the world. If you do not stop killing us, Manson will sin for your heart. Close the shop, flee the country, or watch your own blood spell out your crime on the wall. Remember Sharon Tate. In the summer of 1975, classic rock group Led Zeppelin was in Los Angeles, staying at the Continental Hyatt House Hotel. Prior to August 1969, they almost always sojourned at the famous Chateau Marmont, but after the Tate-LaBianca murders, they felt more secure at the Hyatt. They weren't secure enough, though. Lynette found them, or more accurately, pestered their publicist. She wanted to see guitarist Jimmy Page, she said, to tell him she'd had a vision that something terrible was going to happen to him, perhaps even at his next concert. The publicist, who was very used to bringing women to the band's room for them, took one look at Lynette, pale and earnest, and I sort of picture her probably sweating as well, in her wrinkled dress, and he sent her on her way. On September 5, 1975, after nearly eight years of trying to find ways of proving her devotion to Charlie Manson and being overshadowed by other Manson women, Lynette finally carved out her own moment of infamy. She attempted to assassinate the President of the United States. President Gerald Ford was on a whirlwind West Coast trip, visiting Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and Sacramento, California within the course of 24 hours. 
Just the evening before his unplanned run-in with Lynette, he'd had to attend a dinner and dance fundraiser in Portland. Author Jess Braven uncovered in his research on Lynette a memo that explained to Ford, who was a man born in the Charleston era, that this event was being called Hustle with Ford after, quote, the currently popular dance, The Hustle. Ford was probably so confused. Just a few hours later, an exhausted Ford was flown into California where he spent the night at the Senator Hotel in downtown Sacramento, which was just across the street from the state capitol building. After delivering a keynote speech at a breakfast for local business and political leaders, Ford was scheduled to walk across the street for a meeting with Governor Jerry Brown. Now, this was the father of California's current Governor Jerry Brown. In the muggy Sacramento heat, Ford wore a blue suit with a red, white, and blue tie. He began his walk at 10.02 a.m., two minutes behind schedule. A cheering crowd, two to four people deep, stood at the edge of Capitol Park, lining Ford's path along the concrete walkway to the Capitol's east wing. Ford shook hands with as many bystanders as possible as he passed. Secret Service agents flanked him on all sides, while local Sacramento police roamed the park. Lynette was there in her red robe, with a purse, a red kerchief on her head, a holster strapped to her bare thigh with an elastic belt, and a forty-five caliber Colt pistol in her hand, pointed at the president. Under her robe, she wore a scoop-neck flower print dress. A Secret Service agent, a policeman, and a male bystander immediately tackled her as Ford was whisked away. She was heard yelling, It didn't go off! It didn't go off! The pistol's hammer was down, and there was no round in the firing chamber, but it's unknown whether or not she was aware of this at the time. A later inventory of her purse revealed its contents as a periodic table of the elements, a picture postcard of Pope Paul VI with his face crossed out in ink, a driver's license, a social security card, $11.76, a 25-cent food stamp credit slip, a stick figure sex cartoon drawing, Charles Manson news clippings, list of addresses of reporters and government officials, and letters to other Manson family members. Lynette was charged with one of the rarest and most serious federal crimes, attempted assassination of the president. Her bail was initially set at $1 million, but later lowered to $350,000. Investigators located her parents in Palos Verdes, a wealthy coastal town about 20 miles or 32 kilometers south of Los Angeles. They revealed that Lynette had been under psychiatric care back in 1966, but that they knew almost nothing about her since that time, except what they saw on the news. When an investigator asked Lynette why she did it, she replied, For the trees. She also later claimed that she'd wanted to raise awareness about her desire to get a new trial for the imprisoned Manson Valley members. When questioned about the gun, she revealed she'd taken it from her sugar daddy, Manny Burrow. After badgering him to buy her a gun, quote, for protection, she took his forty-five, which had never fired. He protested, but she ignored him. He said he hadn't thought she'd ever actually use it or do anything this unbelievable. When Charlie got wind of Lynette's actions over at San Quentin prison, he said only, oh my God, in a non-committal and surprised tone. Sharon Tate's widower, Roman Polanski, wrote to Time magazine in response to its decision to put Lynette on its cover that featuring her, quote, in all her fresh-faced, tender-lipped vulnerability, gazing dreamily into history, was the epitome of irresponsible journalism. 
The publicity surrounding Lynette also seemed to produce similar outrage disturbances. On September 22nd, just 17 days after she pulled a gun on the president, another woman, 45-year-old Sarah Jane Moore, actually did shoot a gun at Ford when he returned to California for a brief trip to San Francisco. You can bet that he was not anxious to return again to California anytime soon. A bystander grabbed her arm and the bullet intended for Ford instead hit a taxi driver in the groin. From the onset of Lynette's trial, she commenced to make it as much as a circus sideshow as possible, following in the footsteps of Charlie, Susan, Patricia, and Leslie at their trial. Like Charlie, she fired her attorney and insisted on representing herself. She constantly interrupted proceedings as well as the judge. Luckily for her, Judge McBride was indulgent toward Lynette. They had an almost comical rapport and would banter back and forth like an exasperated father and a sassy daughter. During the prosecution's opening statements, Lynette interrupted so many times that the judge had her removed to an adjacent cell. He said she could return if she promised to be, quote, a good girl. At these times, her fired attorney, who was now working for her as a type of legal assistant, would take over. Vaudier, the choosing of a jury, also became humorous at times. Judge McBride asked one woman if there was anything that would prevent her from sitting on a three- or four-week trial. The woman replied, I have gas sometimes when I sit so long because when I eat, I have to watch what I eat. Lynette, acting as her own attorney, moved to excuse the woman as a juror, blurting out, Mrs. Banks, I'm going to dismiss you so you don't... Before she could finish, probably fearing what Lynette would say in open court, Judge McBride quickly interrupted, All right, Mrs. Banks, thank you for coming. Lynette's attorney promptly subpoenaed President Ford for the trial. Arrangements were made for him to record answers to a list of defense questions from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. To do this, some newfangled equipment was utilized for this historic event. According to Jess Braven, in order to operate video equipment for an exotic device that was virtually unknown to most people in 1975, a squad of technicians drawn from the Navy Department and the White House staff came together. This was all done in order to operate a VCR. Ford was unable to provide any insight except for his recollection of seeing Lynette, who appeared to want to shake hands, speak, or get closer to him. She caught his eye because of her bright, weird red robe. Lynette also attempted to subpoena Charlie. In explaining his importance to her defense, she cited his musical talent and noted that, quote, Mr. Manson is a dancer of exceptional and awesome capability. Her motion was denied. Charlie would not appear at her trial, not even to dance. Throughout the trial, whenever Lynette was a good girl and present in the courtroom, she changed from her jail uniform into clothes that she or Sandra Good had likely made themselves. These were often shapeless pantsuits. One was aquamarine, another was green corduroy. The day before Thanksgiving, the jury reached a verdict. Judge McBride was so on edge that he addressed Lynette as Miss Verdict instead of Miss Frummy. She was found guilty. Just before the sentence was handed down, the prosecutor was allowed to speak. He noted in part that, quote, The defendant has shown herself, through evidence that has been adduced at trial, to be a person who does have and is filled with feelings of hatred toward others. Without warning, Lynette, who had just so happened to be holding an apple in her hand at that moment, threw it at him with perfect aim and screamed, Hatred? It exploded just above the prosecutor's temple and knocked his glasses off his face. 
The mild-mannered judge didn't even punish her for this outburst, but he did tell her that if it happened again, he would order her strapped to a wheelchair with her mouth taped. He then asked if she had any more apples on her. No, that one was for you, she replied calmly. That's what I was afraid of, the judge nodded. It almost read like a bad 70s sitcom. On a more serious note, McBride sentenced her to life in prison with the possibility of parole. As deputies removed Lynette from the courtroom, she threw herself to the floor, kicking and screaming. The deputies hurried her out by using her as a battering ram to open the courtroom's double doors. Sandra Good shouted from her seat, You animals! The other spectators could hear Lynette screaming at the top of her lungs down the hallway. In March 1979, while at the women's prison in Pleasanton, California, along with Sandra Good, who was serving time for the threatening letters the two women had sent, and Patty Hearst, the famous kidnapping victim turned bank robber, Lynette got into trouble yet again. She attacked another inmate, Julianne Busick, with a hammer. Julianne was in prison for helping her husband and three others hijack a TWA plane. Lynette's apparent grievances with her included the claims that she was, quote, a rat, Patty Hearst's best friend, and very disrespectful. Lynette's punishment was a transfer to a West Virginia prison. Then, in December 1987, she briefly escaped. She was found two days later, just two miles from the prison, soaked from a rainstorm. She'd heard that Charlie had testicular cancer and decided she had to go see him. In fact, Charlie was not dying and would not die for another 30 years. Lynette was released on parole on August 16, 2009 and reportedly moved to a small town in New York, where she's apparently been living quietly ever since. Also known as Snake within the family and given a family-approved assumed name, Diane Bluestein, the auburn-haired Diane Lake joined Manson's Vagabonds when she was only 14 years old. Despite her age, she had experienced an already complex and unusual life, thanks, or no thanks, to parents who decided to drop out of society and become hippies. In many ways, her story is the most compelling and sympathetic of all the Manson family members. Diane began her life in 1953 in a seemingly normal, middle-class Minnesota family, the eldest of three children. Her mother Shirley was a homemaker, and her father Clarence was first a house painter and then an artist who did creative painting, then an advertising display artist for a telephone company. Just after Diane began elementary school, Clarence began telling her about his new interests, jazz music and the beat author Jack Kerouac. He also began complaining about how the system was holding them down and stealing their souls by pulling them into, quote, the establishment trap of materialism, which is more commonly known as the old mortgage payment on the family home. When Diane was in second grade, he decided to move his family to California, a place he saw as happening, and traded his entire house for his neighbor's travel trailer. Now, this wasn't a down payment or anything. He just traded outright traded his family's shelter and security for a crappy trailer. The Lake family, of course, had to give up most of their possessions, but Shirley was surprisingly admiring of her husband's dreams and agreed to his impulsive plan. Diane was taken out of school, which her father derided anyway, and they all set off for their grand road trip. Before they'd even left the state of Minnesota, the car broke down and they were stuck on the side of the road with their few remaining possessions in the trailer behind them. 
They were towed to the nearest trailer park, and Clarence's California dreaming had to be postponed for a few years, just after Shirley discovered him in bed with her best friend, which prompted him to undertake his California adventure with his new girlfriend instead of his family. Now, in hindsight, Clarence's leaving was probably the best thing to happen to the rest of the lakes. But two years later, in 1965, he decided he wanted them back, as long as they were willing to move to California to be with him. They all moved into a home he'd rented in Santa Monica, nine blocks from the beach. In early 1967, it was Diane's mother who introduced her father to marijuana. Soon, Clarence was getting 13-year-old Diane stoned. Nearly overnight, the Lake family began embracing the Los Angeles counterculture and attended the first Human Be-In, an event with music and speakers promoting LSD at Griffith Park. Clarence wore a fringed vest, blue jeans and sandals, and ditched his usual Don Draper-style pomade, while Shirley donned a cotton peasant blouse, a long flowing skirt, and a beaded headband. All seemed to be peace and love. But as the rest of 1967 unfolded, Clarence went into a psychedelic spiral, philosophizing about LSD guru Timothy Leary and beat poet Allen Ginsberg and cutting the legs off of their dining room table in an attempt to make it over into a Japanese shabudai. The family attended a love-in, as the B-in was now being called, in March, where the Doors, not yet famous, were performing. After wandering among the crowds, Diane began searching for her parents and realized it left her there at Elysian Park. She eventually hitched a ride home with a stranger. When she arrived, her mother began to cry, telling her, I was praying that the universe would protect you. But her dad merely responded, She's fine, Shirley. I told you she would be. She is resourceful. In early June, Daddy Love Beads began giving his 14-year-old daughter and her friends LSD. The family's rental home became a crash pad, packed with hippies. They filled every room and often lounged around in the nude. One couple referred Diane to a so-called professional photographer who took nude photos of her, instructing her to imagine she was a fairy in the forest, and tried to molest her. Clarence also bought a bread delivery truck from a nearby bakery that he painted in acid-inspired patterns and turned into a makeshift mobile home. Didn't this idea... Am I wrong, or didn't this idea fail miserably the first time? Anyway, that's when Clarence and Shirley announced to their children that they were all going to drop out of society. The adults would quit their jobs to live off the grid and off the land, and they were taking the children out of school, or as Clarence referred to Diane's Santa Monica Junior High, quote, that idiot school. Again, they all had to sacrifice most of their possessions in order to fit a family of five inside a bread truck. At first, Diane resisted. She was able to obtain a written note from her parents advising that she had permission to be on her own. First, she stayed with a couple who had a young child and were expecting another. Ostensibly, she was to be their live-in nanny, but she soon discovered that she was expected to share their marital bed with both of them. So next, she went to San Francisco with a boyfriend who left her without food or money for a week, then returned and expected her to service his father. She hitchhiked back to Southern California, where she found her family at the now-famous Hog Farm Commune. This community was founded by comedian and poet Hugh Romney, a.k.a. Wavy Gravy, and his wife, Bonnie Jean Beecher, a former actress who had guest-starred in The Twilight Zone and Star Trek. Immediately, Diane, who had already been living independently, felt out of place. At heart, she craved structure and rules, and she couldn't quite fit into the circus-like atmosphere. While Wavy Gravy and Bonnie Jean didn't really want an attractive underage teenager around either, Diane didn't even last a month. She left without telling her parents, figuring they really didn't care what she did at this point. 
Later, she discovered that her mother cried after finding out she'd left, and her father, now calling himself Chance, kicked Shirley out of the bread truck for crying, which was the first step toward their eventual divorce. Diane moved in with a young hippie couple who invited her to a fateful party a couple of weeks later. This is where she met Charles Manson and the Manson family. Upon walking into the party, Diane saw Lynette, who immediately jumped up and yelled, Diane is here! Diane is here! Understandably, Diane thought this was some strange psychic kismet, a sign that she belonged with them. Unbeknownst to her at the time, her biological family had already met Manson's group at the hog farm while she was in San Francisco, and had even traveled to the desert with them in Charlie's black school bus, which was decorated inside like the Arabian Nights and had the words Hollywood Productions painted across the side. Shirley had even dropped acid with Manson, and Diane's 11-year-old brother had been taught to French kiss by some of the Manson women. Like many of the other Manson recruits, Diane was inducted into the family through sex with Charlie and instantly fell in love with him. From ages 14 to 16, she was a faithful disciple, but not long after Charlie's initial seduction of Diane, he began to physically abuse her. He often seemed to take out his frustrations on her, the youngest member of the family, by using her as a punching bag and punishing her for offenses such as asking questions or doing anything without his permission with beatings, threats, and even rape. Once when she ran into her former best friends from junior high while she was with the family and greeted them enthusiastically, Charlie became agitated and yelled at the outsiders, You don't belong here, little girls. You have your mother all over your face. This remark served to remind Diane that he hated makeup and what he called, quote, painted ladies. Despite the lack of money and nomadic lifestyle, Diane still took an interest in pretty clothing and fashion, despite the unfortunate-sounding balloon pants that she made out of Dennis Wilson's blue satin bedsheets. Maybe Sadie's, Patty's, and Leslie's satin dresses at their trial were made out of Dennis's bed coverings as well. Diane and Ruth Ann Morehouse, Charlie's other 14-year-old recruit, liked to flip through fashion magazines, although they found the then-current late 60s trends boring. Diane had an orange bikini that she personally embroidered with flowers and paisley designs. She took a liking to Deidre Shaw, the daughter of screen and stage actor Angela Lansbury. Deidre hung around the family for a period of time, fascinated by their oppositional lifestyle. She was spirited, fun, and generous. She was about Diane's age, but drove a sports car and lived near the beach in Malibu, an upscale community popular with celebrities and tourists alike. She'd visit the family and bring them donuts, or if her mother was out of town, she'd invite them over to her house. Once, she showed Diane her enormous closet, bursting with clothes, and as if recalling Charlie's rants against materialism, gave Diane many of her expensive items of clothing. Diane was actually disappointed at the time that Charlie wasn't able to impregnate her. She believed that having his baby would make her more valuable to him. However, malnourishment and the stress of being a Manson family member had caused the cessation of her menstrual cycle, and she was unable to conceive at the time. That was the one bullet in this entire story that was dodged. After the family was arrested during the raids at Barker and Spawn Ranch just prior to the indictments for the Tate-LaBianca murders, Diane confessed to police that she was only 16 years old. She was made a ward of the state and spent some time at Patton State Hospital, a mental institution, until she was able to break free of Charlie's ideological spell. Diane was one of the last witnesses called for the prosecution during the trial against Charlie, Susan, Patricia, and Leslie. As Diane walked down the hallway of the Los Angeles Hall of Justice toward the courtroom, Lynette and Ruth Ann shouted after her, You ain't plastic, and you know it. You can't turn your back on your love. 
Although her parents each remarried and became more stable after what I'm sure was a beautiful and touching divorce ceremony, Diane was raised by foster parents and went on to live a happy, well-adjusted life. For the vast majority of Manson's women, Charlie made them feel, above all, indebted to him. He exaggerated his role in taking care of them and made sure they all felt guilty and undeserving, good for nothing but domestic chores, sex, and working to gain his favor. He would say that women had only two purposes in life, to serve men and birth babies. And the entire group of women decided to each custom embroider sections of a vest they'd taken from a three-piece suit as a gift for Charlie. One member, Nancy Pittman, had a wealthy mother and stole her fur coats and other possessions to give to the family. The other women used the furs to decorate Charlie's dune buggy, along with long locks of their hair. He presented himself to them as a mysterious, sexy musician. He never played covers of other people's music, his songs were all original material, but the lyrics always related to his philosophies. As he began to allow himself to think that he might get signed to a major music company, the informal sing-alongs at Spawn Ranch became less light-hearted and more like boot camp or Mormon tabernacle choir rehearsals, where the women were expected to become perfect backup singers. While the women were in jail on vandalism charges after the Barker raid, another loyal Manson woman, Catherine Scher, a.k.a. Gypsy, wrote to science fiction author Robert Heinlein, asking him to bail them out and portraying the crimes as mere defiant acts against the establishment. He wrote back, saying that although he had committed his own pranks in his youth, he wasn't going to be able to help them. So the women, who were all placed in one cell, used the back of his letter to keep score for an ongoing gin rummy game. They also decided to take turns drinking milk straight from Sandra Good's breasts because she just had a baby and they all believed that not allowing the baby to live in the jail with them was just the man's way of keeping them down. Charlie harped on his view of women as lesser beings and constantly emphasized that no one else would ever love them the way he did. And I guess he didn't realize that's a good thing. When Mary was giving birth, Charlie announced, No one woman will fill his head with lies about the baby. He isolated them from others who might challenge his authority and philosophies, especially their families and former friends, convincing them that it was the family versus the world and everyone else was out to get them. He also tried to make himself seem super smart and philosophical so that no one would ever question his crazy ideas. He normally wouldn't allow the women to cut their hair, claiming it was their crowning glory. How very Victorian of Charlie. But really, he wanted them to cultivate traditional femininity to help recruit followers and so that he could easily pimp them out. He would let each one think they were his personal favorite. For Charlie, it was all about power and control. With the 50th anniversary of the crimes approaching next summer, several projects are in the works which offer even more evaluative viewpoints of the Manson family and their victims. A documentary titled Charlie Says about the adjustment of Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten to post-family life is currently in post-production, and Quentin Tarantino has announced he plans to release a movie about the family called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in time for the 50th anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders in August 2019. I worry about this a little because already since his announcement, I've seen an uptick in glamorization of these crimes. On the other hand, there is some exciting news for those with thousands of dollars to throw around. Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah, has announced an auction of some of Sharon's clothes and other personal belongings to take place on November 17th. 
Apparently, the auction is to help Deborah pay for breast cancer treatment, and we wish her all the best, as well as a speedy recovery. Among the items offered are a brown silk trivia dress, a chocolate mink swing coat with an asymmetrical collar and fur puff buttons designed by Furman's of Beverly Hills, a black floral Christian Dior mini dress, monogrammed floral luggage used on her honeymoon with Roman Polanski, and her 1968 ivory silk wedding dress, valued between twenty-five dollars and $50,000. Interestingly, the fur coat and the dress were reported stolen from Deborah Tate's home back in 2011. And that concludes today's blast into the weird past. If you've enjoyed our show, please subscribe, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and consider rating us with five stars. Source information and further reading is listed on our website at classafelons.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with another story told with vintage flair and big hair.